Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Welcome to Germany Elects, a special world review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, the international editor of the New Statesman, and there's now only a week and a half to go until election day, September 26th. In this fourth episode of Germany Elects, I'll be checking in with our polling expert, Ben Walker. Something bad has to happen for the SPD to, to lose their ground, because at the moment, all signs point to this being a very solid lead or a lead that could grow even larger. And I'll be looking at the Merkel factor, how the outgoing Chancellor's departure has shaped the campaign and why her party's candidate, Armin Laschet, is in trouble. When I head down to the CDU party headquarters, there is a, a tangible angst that one might not become part of government in the future. Michaela Kufner will be joining me later in the episode. With the election nearing and many Germans already casting their postal votes, time is running out for Angela Merkel's CDU-CSU political alliance and its candidate to succeed her, Armin Laschet. As we discussed last time on Germany Elects, the Social Democratic SPD under Olaf Scholz now has a clear lead in the polls and appears the most likely to lead Germany's next government. Laschet and his team are now pulling out all the stops to lure swing voters back to the fold warning that Scholz would bring the socialist left party into a coalition and bringing out their biggest asset of all, Angela Merkel herself. Speaking in the Bundestag on September 7th, for what may have been the last time, she was in uncharacteristically partisan form. German citizens are going to the polls in a few days. Either a government with the SPD and the Greens that accepts the support of the left party, or at least doesn't rule it out. My word, what an uproar. I have been a Bundestag member for over 30 years and I don't know where these things should be discussed if not here. This is the heart of German democracy, and it's here that we discuss precisely this. Not that long ago, it looked like this election was Laschet's to lose. He's the minister-president of North Rhine-Westphalia, Germany's most populous state, and like Merkel, a Christian democratic moderate who likes to build consensus. In a country that likes stability, and in which Merkel still has high approval ratings, he looked set to be the continuity candidate. My father was a miner. As minister president, I closed the last mine. I know what change means. Now it's about our whole country. The pandemic has hit us all. 
It has also shown us how much we need each other. We must now seize the opportunity to modernize Germany. Yet Laschet has proven gaff prone. He was caught laughing in the background as Germany's president delivered a somber speech on the terrible flooding in Western Germany back in July. His campaign has been lacklustre. Now he's scrambling to regain momentum, putting in a punchy performance at the second TV debate on September 12th, accusing Scholz directly of wanting to do a deal with the far left. It should be made clear to everyone, if there is a numerical majority, even if your party comes second, you will form a coalition with the left party. For this week's New Statesman, I've written a cover essay on Angela Merkel's 16 years as Chancellor and the historical legacy that she bequeaths her successor. You can find that in the show notes or on our brand new New Statesman website at newstatesman.com. In this episode of Germany Elects, I'm going to explore that legacy and what it means for this election including Laschet's struggling campaign. But first, let's see what the polls are saying. I'm very pleased to be joined by the New Statesman's resident polling and data guru, Ben Walker. Ben, thank you for being back on Germany Lex. Thank you for inviting me. So let's let's just sort of start with the headline numbers. How are the polls looking? As we record this, we're about 10 days from the election. What do they say? So if for some reason your listeners are only now starting to tune in, it's worth just reminding where we've been over the course of the past few months. So when we launched our tracker at the start of August, the Christian Democrats uh, were about 10 points ahead of the Greens. So they were sitting pretty with about 29% of the vote, which was 10 points ahead of the Greens who were on 19%. And the Social Democrats were in a pretty disappointing third on about 15 or 16%. Today, it's all up in the air. Throughout August, the SPD were gaining, they were gaining ground. They overtook the Greens at the end of August and then overtook the Christian Democrats at the start of September. Today, we now have the Social Democrats five points ahead of the Christian Democrats. You have them on 25%, the Christian Democrats on 20%, and the Greens, they were, they're, they're still up on 2017, but they've had a little bit of a disappointing campaign drifting downwards ever slightly over the course of the past few weeks. They are now on 16%. The other parties, really, there's been next to no change. The Free Democrats, the uh, the Conservative Liberals, they're on 12%. The Far Right, they're on 11%, almost unchanged over the course of the past few months. And the left, the Linke, uh, they are on, what, 6%. There's a chance they could fall below 5%, but the chances of them falling out of the Bundestag are very, very low indeed. Uh, but yeah, over the course of the past few weeks, pretty pretty radical changes. Yeah. And I mean, I'm reminded just looking at Olaf Scholz and the SPD of that phrase that was used about Tony Blair um, in the run up to the 1997 election, which is a man carrying a very expensive vase across a slippery floor. He just needs to get to election day uh, without um, some sort of slip up uh, to, 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 to be sure of coming first. I mean, we don't have much time left now until the election. It's on Sunday the 26th. What's your sense looking at the numbers of whether the SPD can maintain its lead? Yeah, something bad has to happen for the SPD to to lose their ground, because at the moment, all signs point to this being a very solid lead or a lead that could grow even larger. This election has been defined by those who are unenthused with politics. A great proportion of those that have been voting for Angela Merkel over the course of her uh, uh, time as Chancellor 
are now uncertain about who they want to vote for. A lot of women are undecided. A lot of ethnic minorities are undecided. These are the people who once backed the Christian Democrats who are now uncertain about staying with, with them under Armin Laschet. So really, I would say the ceiling for the SPD is pretty high. Bear, this, bear, 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 bear these few things in mind. 46% of Germans are considering voting for the SPD. 41% considering the CDU. 25, 28% of Germans say they will never vote for the CDU. Only 20% say the same for the SPD. The SPD has, is the least antagonistic of parties out there. Mm. It could go even higher. That reflects what we were discussing on the last episode of Germany, Lex, which was Schultz's sort of inoffensive appeal. Um, he doesn't put too many voters off and he seems to have occupied that moderate centrist territory where Merkel used to command German politics. Yeah, exactly. As, as one, of, one of your your profile on Schultz actually said, uh, he's he's just, he's Merkel Mark II. He, he's trying to be Merkel Mark II, especially with the uh, signature hand pose, which is a bit like, crikey, that is definitely copy and paste, isn't it? He, he allowed himself to be photographed with his fingers steepled in the way that Merkel does. I mean, I think there are some ideological and political differences between them, but certainly stylistically, he is, mm. he is absolutely running as yeah. the, the continuity Merkel. Well, that actually brings us on to the question of, of Merkel's departure. And we're going to be focusing more on that um, later in this uh, episode of Germany Lex. She leaves office in a rather peculiar situation, really, doesn't she? Because she's chosen to step down. She could have run for another term, probably would have won it. Um, and she leaves office quite popular. And that, that, that does seem to be shaping the dynamics of this election, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, there's been some hypothetical polling done, actually, which pits Angela Merkel against the current crop of candidates. Yes. And how would she have performed? Hypothetical polling isn't always accurate because it's imagining, it's asking people to imagine as opposed to project, uh, you know, you know, vote based on the reality. She, she's always ahead. She's always ahead of the pack, like quite substantially so. She has leads similar to what Olaf Scholz has 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 right now. But when it comes to her time as, her time as Chancellor, Germans, to tell you the truth, have never been more um, approving. Even, even during the coronavirus crisis, um, they were more critical of Chancellor Merkel than they are now. At the moment, you have numbers around about 80% of Germans who say the work of the Chancellor has been good. You have mm -hmm. satisfaction with the federal government at around 60%. You have satisfaction with the parties in the federal government. Well, the SPD is the highest there uh, in, in net favourability when it comes to CDU. However, you know, there's still net satisfaction, but it's very low. It's very mm -hmm. low compared to the SPD. So by, by mimicking her, Schultz is pitching to an electorate that would frankly be quite happy for her to carry yeah. on. Voters are content with continuity right now in Germany. Mm -hmm. they're, they're happy with the status quo. They're happy to sort of carry on, as it were. But the annoying thing is the leader of that status quo the champion of that status quo stepping down. Yeah. So they're, going, they're probably going to go for the next best thing. And that next best thing is probably Olaf Scholz. Well, that brings me to my final question, because if, if we'd been discussing this um, even two months ago, we would probably have assumed that the, the, the continuity um, ticket would have been the candidate from Merkel's own CDU and their CSU partners, Armin Laschet. And he's really, he's, he's really tanked. What does the polling tell us about that? Because that, that, in some ways, has been the big surprise of this campaign. Laschet belongs to Merkel's more centrist wing of the party. He is seen as a moderate, uh, sort of clubbable, um, uh, kind of uh, reassuring figure. When he was selected as the party's candidate, I wrote it up as, um, as, as an example of the old CDU slogan, no experiments. And yet this seems to have not turned out to be true. What do the numbers tell us about Laschet's weaknesses and why he might have failed so uh, kind of conspicuously? What one tends to think, if you're looking to shape a narrative, it all went south after his laugh during laugh, laugh during the uh, floods, but it didn't. He was already pretty received quite. He was, he was received quite 
in a, in a lukewarm manner. Voters weren't enthused by him. He had net favorability, but it was small. He wasn't considered, you know, you said no experiments. Voters weren't enthused by that. They didn't seem they didn't have much to, to say to that. When he was selected, around about forty percent of uh, Germans thought he was suitable as chancellor. That figure has now fallen to thirty percent. Olaf Scholz is considered suitable by seventy percent of Germans, and Annalena Baerbock is considered suitable by twenty five percent of Germans. It's he's he's not exactly impressed, and he didn't really impress with the electorate when he was selected either. He was more it was a it's a very lukewarm announcement, and uh, so, some have said he's uh, like a regional politician or a, what was it, a provincial politician. Yeah, he does, he does, he does sometimes, sometimes feel like he should sort of be opening opening village yeah. fates and things somewhere and, in the Rhineland rather than running. <laughs> like, and, and another thing, obviously, the, the, the Christian Democrat campaign has tried to claw back any sort of share of support by attacking the SPD. But all the attacks by Laschet, that they've fallen on deaf ears. Every warning he's made hasn't had any impact on the polling whatsoever. It's it's almost like voters are just ignoring him. Yeah. ignoring him now. It does seem to be um, panic stations there. Well, we will be talking a bit more about Laschet's campaign in the next part of this episode. As a reminder, you can find our Germany poll tracker and all our German election coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Look New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can subscribe from just £1 a week or one euro a week if you're on continental Europe, by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. After the break... Laschet reminds me of a particular type, you know, the guy who would sort of show up with a cigarillo and sort of say, say, lads, so you, I've heard you're listening to this thing called Public Enemy. I hear they're dangerous. You sort of try to talk with the kids and seem a little bit off because he was the local, you know, some worked at the local Sparkas, the local bank. But in that, he embodies something quite parochial and provincial in his typology. That's Alex Clarkson. More from him in a moment. 
Well, in many ways, the defining factor of this German election campaign has been the departure of the outgoing chancellor, Angela Merkel, after 16 years as chancellor. There are Germans who uh, have the vote at this election who don't remember a time before she led the country. And I'm joined now by two brilliantly well-positioned people to discuss this. Uh, Michaela Kufner is the chief political editor at Deutsche Welle, Germany's um, international broadcaster. And she's also the host of their podcast on Merkel's legacy and her style of leadership called Merkel's Last Dance. And they've had some really interesting conversations about how Merkel has governed Germany. And I, I strongly recommend taking a listen to that. So thank you for finding the time in a busy election campaign to join us, Michaela. Sure thing. And I'm also joined by Alex Clarkson, who is lecturer for European studies at King's College London, and one of the most incisive observers of uh, German modern history and politics. Thank you very much for being with us, Alex. Thank you very much. So let's start with that with that question then. I mean, how for both of you is Merkel's departure shaping this election campaign? Michaela, would you like to start us off? Well, clearly, the, the big difference is that there's a sense of a departure, not just of Germany as a nation, but also the political landscape. And her own party believed that they need to tread a fine line between still being part of that Merkel heritage and showing that there will be a true change in those post-Merkel years. And that's seen their top candidate, Armin Laschet, declare that there needs to be a decade of drastic change following these Merkel years. And at the same time, in these final two weeks of campaigning, realizing that he does need Merkel a lot more than he thought and then she thought, with her now being bound more into the election campaign than she'd initially declared. She will go to his constituency. He will come and visit her in hers. All of this is very last moment. Are you, are you surprised at how, how much she's become involved in the campaign? Because you don't get the sense that she would prefer prefer not to. Actually, it was more like I was wondering how long they would be able to do without her. What was yeah. highly unusual and what took us all by surprise is that she really went for it during what we believe was her last speech in Parliament. Let's see how long it takes to get a coalition. But yeah. um, speaking in Parliament, she said that Armin Laschet was the, the right man for Germany. And this was campaigning right at the heart of the German Parliament. Um, she really initially declared she would pretty much stay out of her own succession and then realized it's simply not possible. He needs that last minute push to make it across the finishing line to ensure that conservative CDU will still be part of a government in the future. Alex, what do you think? I think that uh, her departure has actually trapped the CDU CSU most. And partly because I think the, the CDU CSU in particular, as a lot of, I think, both external and, and domestic German commentators have sort of forgotten the reasons for Merkel's success. I mean, it's very interesting. I was sort of thinking a little bit about, you know, the late Kohl years, how people sort of forgot how in the first decade of, of Helmut Kohl's time in power, the chancellor, the reunification chancellor in the 1980s and 1990s, how vulnerable he was, how he only became this dominant figure through the reunification process. And similarly, Merkel has been around so long that I think a lot of people, particularly in her party, forgot the reasons for her success and how she attained dominance in the first place. And she very much became this dominant figure because in 2005, when she became chancellor in the Grand Coalition of the SPD, she understood that a substantial part of the German population had been tired with constant change and constant turmoil. Yeah. Um, you know, to think back to Germany in the 1990s and early noughts, there was this weird juxtaposition between this sort of this experience both Michaela and probably I both had at school in Germany of constant change, of all these things happening suddenly, of society being sort of churned 
turned by the impact of reunification, mass migration, changes in Europe and the, and the globe, and yet a government less and less able to cope with that change. And then you had this period between 98 and 2005 under Schröder and Fischer, the SPD Green government, of, of really trying to attempt to reform to enable the state to catch up with all this social, cultural and economic change. And by 2005, I think a lot of Germans were tired. On the center left, the center right, uh, who they were sort of sort of tired. They wanted somebody who promised them a degree of stability, a degree of quiet, right? And 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 Merkel sort of serviced this this demand. And I think, in a sense, for for different reasons, the SPD and Greens understood in the last three or four years, still understood. And I think the FDP, in its own way, understood that German voters still don't want a degree of stability, want a sort of stable foundation. That the historical memory of that period of turmoil and change in the eighties and nineties and early noughts, that's still around. And the party that least understood this was, I think, the Tzediotsiasu. For a number of different reasons, there was frustration with her dominance within the party. Um, there was anger with her because of the policy among parts of the party about the policies she took in response to the migration crisis, as well as the Eurozone crisis in, 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 in the mid-2010s. And I think it was the Tzediotsiasu that most wanted change, most wanted something different. And that's where I think both the party leadership and the party membership sort of projected their own frustration with Merkel onto a wider electorate, partly because, again, of because the rise of the far-right AfD took away parts of what used to be uh, a voter base that the TDU-CSU can always count on. And it's the TDU-CSU that comes out of this thinking, oh, the voters want something different. And then quite late, I think with Laschet and afterwards, have come out realizing that actually, no, they still need to be able to fulfill this hankering for stability among large parts of the population, and they don't know what to do. Do you think that they're struggling then to present voters with an offer of continuity? I think that they, they sort of belatedly have realized that they need someone to fulfill that desire for stability. And I think Laschet's appeal was partly that he could fulfill this demand. The problem is if Laschet becomes too much of a continuity Merkel figure, he then opens up frustration on the right of the party among figures like uh, who you know like Friedrich Voll or Friedrich Merz. So that's how Hans-Georg Maaßen has been able to sort of put himself into 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 a, a position within the, the right of the party. Just to clarify, Hans-Georg Maaßen is a is a, a sort of provocative figure on the right who used to be. Um, chief of one of Germany's intelligence agencies, but is obviously a kind of a, a, a difficult figure for someone like Laschet to handle. He's, he's gone well off the reservation, and I think he sort of plays to part of the party that wants to eventually open up dialogue with the IFD. Yeah. So the, the problem is, is that Laschet, there's part of the party that sort of has been built, built up by Merkel and wants this continuity and stability, and there's part of the party that really wants to move on to something else. Yeah. And actually, the problem is that CDU-CSU leader, any leader has to balance that. Uh, the previous leader before Laschet fell because of that, and Laschet is now struggling with that. Um, Michael, I'd like to come to you um, on that, on, on, on the, the party's struggles to kind of work out where it stands after Merkel. But I'd also, before we come on to Laschet in greater detail, um, you know, you've followed Merkel closely for, for, for a long period of time. You know, she is leaving. It is, you know, in many ways, the central fact of this election. What about her governing style do you think will disappear or will, will go with her? Well, Angela Merkel stands for stability. And I think Alex just made the case why stability is so sexy in Germany in political <laughs> terms, why voters really want that. And she also stands for responsive politics, responding to the challenge at the moment, responding to crises very well, navigating crises, steering Europe's 
largest economy through troubled waters, be it the financial crisis, be it the beginning of this pandemic. And that is something Angela Merkel is known for. And she's also always very closely listening to what the public sentiment is. And this has made her someone who was a visionary when it came to recognizing the challenges of her time. In 2006, she held a speech at German Reunification Day where she basically gave a diagnosis of the nation that Germany is too slow to respond to innovation, digitization is an issue, um, that Germany needs to become more flexible. And then there's this long period, almost 16 years later, where there suddenly appears, and it appears to be suddenly, but people who've watched it closely kind of see it coming. You look at how much has she actually acted upon things that she recognized early, also like the climate crisis. She went to Greenland to make that a point in 2007. She made it an issue at the G8 in 2008. She basically forced leaders to take it more seriously globally. And then there was a constitutional court ruling telling her in the final year in office that she hadn't acted fast enough, that it simply wouldn't be enough to safeguard the rights of future generations. So there is a huge gap between this perception that everything is all right and everything is on track. And when you take a cold, hard look at what she actually changed, which innovation she actually brought to Germany in terms of not just governing through crises, but mapping out or actually having a vision for where Germany needs to be in 20, 30 years' time. It's, it's, it's sometimes been said of Merkel that she's been quite an apolitical sort of leader, that she has, you say herself, that she's kept a close eye on public opinion and what political room she actually has in a given moment. But it's also been said that, I mean, there's this phrase used, um, asymmetrical demobilization, that by her sheer inoffensiveness, she's helped close down grievances that might have given opponents the chance to um, take her on or, or, or topple her. Do you think that's a fair assessment of her um, style of leadership and legacy? Well, it isn't quite fair because it uh, it leaves out the other side of this, which is that she is a huge consensus builder. She mm. will always have in mind um, what different interest groups in society will say. So that's that's what the stability politics Merkel style is, that she also knows minute details of where the pressure points are for different interest groups. But I think, but it is fair criticism to say that she responds to requirements, but she she will respond to a debate that is forced upon her. She will find solutions, but she won't start a new debate. I've, and I've, take I've, take that political risk, and we see, we can go down the list. Uh, she did start the climate debate, but then when it got difficult, she kind of, you know, decided not to force through any measures that people would feel uncomfortable with. Um, she didn't start Germany's um, foreign policy, let alone security debate internationally. Mm. Germany is very apolitical when it comes to that. It still is toxic for politicians to go there. Afghanistan is changing this right now. So she successfully navigates these crises, mm. but she doesn't act upon things she's long recognized as the issues that need to be taken forward. I've, I've written a, uh, an essay about her in, in this week's New Statesman, um, to which Alex kindly contributed um, some thoughts. And in it, I say that for me, one of the iconic images of her style of leadership is, is and there are so many pictures of this, her in the Bundestag, tapping away on her phone. And it's like you have you have the podium, what, 10 metres away from usually where she usually sits on the government uh, seats there. 
and 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 there are other politicians orating and um kind of casting out dividing lines and and and, and sort of sweeping rhetoric and there she is tapping away managing her power network um receiving information sending out questions and it's this sort of this i mean there's a phrase that i i've heard attributed to her father auf sicht or to, to drive by sight rather than sort of pinpointing a, a place on the horizon that she wants to get to she responds to circumstances alex um michael has very nicely kind of outlined merkel's approach there which elements of that do you think will disappear which elements of that merkelism will go where the Laschet or Scholz or Baerbock becomes chancellor after the election? So this is actually an interesting question for, for Olaf Scholz, who is um, the chancellor candidate for the um, Social Democratic Party and, and current finance minister, and um, also has a very complicated task leading leading um, a, a Social Democratic Party, which is Michael has pointed out, is, is, is being led by is other people, Iskin and Boyans. And the problem for Scholz is that he is, if he wins, or if he at least gets the SPD higher than everyone else, He's done that by aping Merkel's style of standing above politics. But what you can quite clearly see in the way in which this election has been waged in the last three or four months is that we're heading to a much more polarized political environment in German politics. There are substantial parts of the TDCSU who for years have been frustrated with um, Merkel's lack of conservative profile, who are just spoiling for a fight. I think Friedrich Merz, who's long been a party rival, was out of politics for years and has come back. Um, you know, sort of represents this kind of conservative belief that the CDU CSU needs needs as much stronger conservative profile, and they're really out for for a fight with, if particularly if there's a central left or liberal government. The FDP under Christian Lindner, the sort of economic liberal party, also you know wants to have a, a sharper profile, even if it goes into a coalition with with the central left and Greens. And both the Greens and the SPD are want to push themes like climate change, like reform of the pensions, parts of the social welfare system, that are going to be controversial, and they're also going to be foreign policy challenges particularly related to the Sahel, where there's no debate in Germany, even though Germany has troops in countries like Mali, and the entire EU border system around the Mediterranean and North Africa, where there are a whole set of problems piling up for the EU, issues to do with Ukraine and Russia as well, where there is no debate, but we really are going to cause some real challenges and challenge a set of foreign policy and, and, and consensus on defense policy in Germany that are going to generate a much more polarized debate. So I think a lot of that Merkel style, I think Scholz in particular wants to continue that Merkel style, but I I think he might struggle because the ground in German politics is shifting ra- rapidly into an environment where, it, which is much more like the years before Merkel took power, the years of the red-green coalition government, where difficult policy decisions were made, which she then took it was able to take advantage of afterwards, reap the benefits of. It was the Schröder-Fischer government of the early knots that fell because of these pressures, and we're entering into a much more dynamic political environment now, in which difficult decisions can no longer be avoided, and which we're going to face probably a much more hyperpolarized environment where the kind of the Merkel style really doesn't work anymore. And also where Merkel was the dominant figure, the first among equals in European politics since around 2011, 2012, I think any new chancellor will struggle, particularly in a three-party coalition, to be that dominant figure in European politics. Mm. So externally, European voters will also face a chancellor that is no longer the great crisis manager that might be pushed aside by an Italian leader or by Macron, who but for different reasons might have more freedom of action. So it's not just Merkel's calm personality, it's also the circumstances, the sort of historical moment that she's 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 governed Germany for. Michaela, what 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 do you think? And and actually could we could could you move us a bit on to the question of Armin Laschet? Because, you know, back when he was selected as the um Chancellor candidate for the CDU CSU, it looked like he was the natural choice to be the obvious successor. You know, he comes from the more moderate wing of the party. He's a consensus sort of politician. He was seen as 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 offering continuity with Merkel. 
I mean, first of all, how how accurate do you think that sense was? And secondly, why do you think he's struggled so much to maintain the levels of support for his party that, that, that she's managed throughout most of her time as chancellor? His image as being, and, and until a couple of months ago, he was actually even called a mini Merkel or male Merkel. Yeah, mini Merkel was Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, but the male Merkel, because he too is a consensus builder and he is a very successful one. He is um, governing Germany's um, most populous state rather successfully in a not uncomplicated um, scenario, coalition scenario, only a very tiny mi- uh, majority there. So he does have a track record of that. But then he went on the campaign trail and he didn't measure up to that comparison with Angela Merkel. He mm. was seen laughing in the background in the midst of these devastating floods as the president was basically consoling flood victims. He's had a couple of gaffes. There was a, a, a journalist who rather innocently asked him for a third point that he would immediately tackle after being elected and he couldn't think of one. So he's had a series of gaffes which have really, that would never happen to Angela Merkel and it never would have happened to the early Angela Merkel mm-hmm. um, because 16 years ago, she did not look like the obvious leader who would be seen as, as a living legend in terms of stability politics. So he hasn't quite recovered from that and I dare say he won't. And this is also why he's changed tactics. He's now going on the attack against Olaf Scholz. And Olaf Scholz is not just the Social Democrat Chancellor candidate and the finance minister. He's also the vice chancellor at this very Mm. moment in time in this coalition. And he's very much cashing in on that role and the fact that he didn't make mistakes. And if you look at his campaign, it is the most simple and arguably the slickest campaign approach because it's completely tailored to his personality. One of his slogans is respect for you, respect for every individual citizen. So it's a very, very much tailored to someone who's already had the opportunity to establish the statesman-like stature. And he's been at uh, the G7 finance ministers meeting and the G20, and he helped implement a global minimum tax of 15%. So he's got a global track record. And that's giving Armin Laschet a very tough time at this very moment. And they both they both went to Paris last week to have a, an audience with Macron. And watching the footage, I mean, I was it struck me, I mean, to be head of the largest, the most popular state in Germany is no small job. Um, but I was struck by just watching them thinking I can how easy it is to imagine Scholz as the chancellor, as the as the figure going to these summits, because he's been at them so so many times, and he sort of occupies the shoes of a chancellor in some ways already, and I'm sure that's a big part of his appeal. Alex, before we uh, started recording, you had a very nice um, line about characterising Laschet's personality, his sort of sociological type. It would be remiss of me not to ask you to repeat it in, on on on, on the record because it, I think it, it captures for listeners outside of Germany a little bit of a sense of where he comes from. So Laschet reminds me of a particular type, you know, that you would encounter that was sort of the the the, the village or the suburb kind of grandee, and you know the guy mm-hmm. who was the Vorsitzende des Wasserbahn. So we had this 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 there's two types he reminds me of. There was the chairman of the local uh, water polo team, a water polo club. I was, I played water polo as a kid and who would sort of show up with a cigarillo with the, with the youth team and sort of say, say lads. So I've heard you're listening to this thing called public enemy. I hear they're dangerous, you know, be careful. And, and, you know, he was sort of trying to talk with the kids and seem a little bit off because he was the local, you know, some worked at the local Sparkasse, the local bank. Or he also <laughs> sort of reminded me of, 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 of my, my old sport team who would smoke a cigarette at the side of the track 
sh- you know, sitting down shouting at us to run faster. And it's this is it's difficult. I mean, this is the thing. It's like the, I've had the reverse problem sort of discussing this on, 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 on podcasts about British politics of German counters. There's these social types that are recognizable to people who grew mm. up in Germany in certain moments. The difficult to translate. But in that, he embodies something quite parochial and provincial in his typology that a lot of Germans, I think, would recognize. And that feeds into maybe a final point for me on him is that he is successful in North Rhine-Westphalia because he, he fits a certain kind of regional North Rhine-Westphalian politics. Germany is a very regionalized society. Like, even Bundesland allegiances and Bundesland politics matter. And there are a lot of politicians who do really well on the regional level. I, I'd take, say, somebody like Volker Bouffier in Hessen, who, who very well mm. knows himself he would never make it nationally, right? And that's part of Zuda's problem in Bavaria. He's always pitched as a great chancellor, but he knows he'll probably need another electoral cycle to really develop a national profile. This is Marcus Zuda, the leader of the, the Christian Social Union. Exactly. I mean, it's what did for Stoiber in mm. election chances 2002. I was in Hannover when he showed up in 2002 at a rally, and people just looked at him and said, this is a Bavarian person. There's no way I'm voting for him, right? And and it's it's I think Laschet. There like there are other figures that do really well regionally can do well nationally. I think Manuela Schwesig in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern has a real national potential, but I don't think Laschet's North Rhine-Westphalian style can really translate to the rest of the country because when he shows up, people look at those guys and says, "That was my old sports teacher, or that was my old um, carnival association uh, chairman." How could this guy ever represent the country? Listen, listening to you, I wonder. I wonder if there's a sort of a theory here that Merkel's success might have been to do with the fact that she is a little bit of an other. She isn't a recognizable type. She doesn't. I mean, obviously, she she comes from the northeast of Germany. She represents a constituency on the coast, but she doesn't have a strong regional accent. She doesn't wear her regional identity on her sleeve. I mean, Michaela, you've been thinking a lot about her her style and uh, on, on your podcast. Uh, what what do you think of that bit of sort of um, kind of cod? Cod political science. Well, I mean, this has also led to quite a bit of disappointment, actually, in the East, because she wasn't just the first, she isn't, she still is, the first female chancellor, but also the first um, chancellor from the East. And you hear a lot of voices if you're traveling in um, Eastern Germany, a sense of disappointment. What what did she do for us? Uh, the pensions still aren't the same. Um, the wages still aren't on a par, and this is 30 years after German reunification. So uh, there is this disappointment there. And I mean, Laschet, he comes, um, he's not, it's not just highly regionalized. He comes from a very Catholic background. Yeah. He is as conservative as you can be from that kind of heritage. Yeah. At the same time, there might be a political irony in this, actually, because if we're looking at the polls now, Angela Merkel was accused by the conservative camp within her own party to have led her party too much towards the center, arguably the left. Well, if anything, a future coalition, uh, the CDU will have to become more to the left if it wants to be part of a government in the future, because it's become weaker. The Social Democrats and the Greens have both become stronger. So if anything, Angela Merkel built that bridge for potential future political attachment there. So um, there is a slight irony in that because he might face a backlash within his own party of those who wanted the CDU to become more conservative Mm. again, but it, no, it won't be able to in if it wants to be part of government after September 26th. I think that's the interesting question. Does the CDU CSU or do parts of its leadership membership really want to be part of government? And I think that's one of the things. And I think there's there's a kind of a toxic interaction between parts of the CDU CSU, even parts of its leadership, and a kind of a very much a very online social media echo chamber around the, the editor of Bild, Julian Reichert, a, a, a kind of notorious columnist known as, well, his nickname is Don Alfonso. 
um, you know, Pochart, you know, the, the editor of Bild, uh, editor of Welt. And, I, you know, you, you look at this and you think there are parts of the Tediotsu that would rather now drift into a kind of ideological purism, however you define that and sort of fight for the values of conservatism or the center-right that they thought Merkel had sort of sold down the river for the last decade and a half, then really be a serious party of government. So I also wonder very strongly about, say the Tediotesu does manage to enter into governing coalition. I often wonder whether people go on about the potential instability of a coalition between SPD, Greens, and the left party, which has all its, a lot of problems in terms of its foreign policy, in terms of stable government in Germany. But I do heavily wonder whether... Any coalition with the CDU-CSU would have an equal problem of instability. You'd have Marco Suda and the CSU party group sabotaging, trying to trying to build up Marco Suda's profile. You'd have the CDU civil war potentially because they've done so badly between conservatives who want ideological purism and centrists who understand that that's a way into sort of a party split or, or, or implosion. It's in a sense it's historically fascinating because many of these debates were held about the CDU-CSU's future after coal fell. Um, in 98, whether it would survive. And there were a number of party financing scandals at the time. And somehow it's full circle, right? That was the rise and fall of Merkel's career. And the CDU-CSU has returned to all the same existential questions about its long-term survival and profile it had um, now almost 25 years ago, 20 years ago. I just want to add something to that because I'm getting a different sense when I head down to the CDU party headquarters or I talk to MPs and many are directly elected. They don't come from lists. They they are directly yeah. elected. So um, there is a, a tangible angst that one might not become part of government in the future. There's a lot of, um, I mean, over 16 years, this party has grown more and more part of the government. And there's a real, real, almost depending on who you talk to, but sometimes even a hint of panic mm. that this could all change and that this neat succession won't work out. And Angela Merkel stated after the last elections, nobody can form a government against us. This is This is how she described the victory last time around. So there is a is a tangible sense of panic. I, I, th I think there's, they're they're in trouble both ways. Is my view. I agree with Michaela. Mm -hmm. I think they're in trouble. I, she she's setting out what happens if they're going up. I think they're in trouble both ways. I'd like to give you the last word, Michaela, because you were there uh, on the weekend at the second of the three TV debates between um, Laschet, Scholz, and Baerbock. We've got the last one coming up this coming weekend as we record this. There's a week and a half left to go until election day. From 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 the conversations you have, from the sense you got being there at the studios last weekend, do you think there's any chance that Lasher can pull this back and, and end up in first place? Yes, there is. But probably despite his um, candidacy and not because of, and this is also the internal criticism that he might face post-elections, of course, very much depending on how it went. Mm. He acted out of character going on the attack. That really is not his personality at all. And the most relaxed press team was definitely the team of Olaf Scholz, mm. who is still way ahead, not just in the personal ratings, who actually did the almost unimaginable. He managed to let his party's polling rates follow suit and bring them now ahead of the conservative CDU-CSU. But we've seen such a roller coaster ride in the polling. And we haven't even spoken about the Greens, who've been pretty much mm. on the way down. But I, I, I really think he's, he's, he's in trouble. But at the end of the day, there is a conservative faithful here in Germany, which is also highlighted by the fact that by far the most um, elected MPs are directly elected mm -hmm. uh, in Angela Merkel still, or Armin Laschet's conservative CDU, CSU. So they have, they have roots in their constituencies. As yeah. Well. 
Yeah. Well, we will be paying close attention to that as the election draws ever nearer here on Germany Elects. But for now, I want to say a big thank you uh, to our guests, Michaela Kufner, uh, who, as a reminder, is the co-host of the excellent podcast Merkel's Last Dance. Um, some very interesting conversations there on very specific points about Merkel's legacy, be it whether she's a feminist, her record on technology and environment. So give that a listen. Um, thank you for joining us, Michaela. You're welcome. And thank you very much to Alex Clarkson of King's College London. Alex's piece on Merkel is up on the New Statesman's shiny new website, newstatesman.com, and uh, I'd strongly recommend giving that a read too. Thank you very much for joining us, Alex. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week for our final Germany review episode before polling day. And there will be another regular episode of World Review previewing next week's Canadian election on Friday. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special World Review pop-up podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. You can read all of our German election coverage, including our poll tracker and my essay on Angela Merkel at newstatesman.com Germany. And follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Chris Stone. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.